Hey there, my name is Charles Kimbangi, and it's a privilege to speak today in our series Undivided Race, Grace and Galatians. This is week five in our series, and I'm sure you will agree that it's been pretty challenging at times, and it's made us feel uncomfortable at times as well. But overall, it's a series that is so, so important as we seek to be a church that is united and one that reflects God's heart for his people. Let me just remind you where we've been so far in this series. We've seen that because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done, there is now one race, one gospel, one table, one faith. And today we're going to see that we have one saviour. Last week during her preach on One Faith, Faria Fernandez raised some important questions about identity. After all, every single one of us from time to time will have questions about our identity. Questions like, who am I? Where do I belong? Who are my people? As a mixed race man, I've spent many years questioning my identity. I'm the son of a black man from the Democratic Republic of Congo and also the son of a white British lady from Yorkshire. I was born in England, but I spent the first couple of years of my life living in Congo before a civil war broke out in Congo and forced us to move back to England. And eventually we settled in Brighton and I was pretty much raised on the south coast of England in Brighton. Since then, I've lived in different parts of England. And for much of that time, to be honest, I've kind of realized that I don't quite fit. I'm a little bit odd, it seems. By that, I mean, I often feel like the odd one out. You see, white people often see me as a black man, and I've often and regularly throughout my life experienced subtle and explicit racism. But also black people often see me as white, or at the very least, not black enough, or sometimes not African enough to fit in with them. So not all the time, but at various times, I felt othered from both sides. And it's left me feeling confused and questioning, where do I fit? Where do I really belong? One example would be, I remember when I was 16 years old and I went to Kenya on a mission trip with my church youth group. And the church youth group was majority white, to be honest. So I already kind of felt like the odd one out. But we went uh, you know, along to Kenya. And whilst we were there, that the locals would you know, keep referring to me as Mzungu. Mzungu, that's their word for white person. And so it was really bizarre to feel like, you know, in one group, I feel like I am white, but the other group feel like they, they see me as black. And so I was continually wrestling with this idea, like, where do I belong? Where can I really call home? No one's sort of embracing me as their own. I wonder if you've ever had those kind of feelings or had those kind of questions. Well, if you have, you're in very good company. I think we're, if we're honest, most of us, if not all of us, have had those types of questions. What's my identity? Who am I? Where do I fit? You might have those questions, but still you might have other questions. Like why on earth are we doing this series? You might say, haven't we moved on from this discussion about race? Or maybe you're saying, are we just talking about race and justice because they've suddenly become fashionable trends in contemporary Britain? You know, you might say, are we just talking about race because everyone is now talking about race in light of what happened to George Floyd? In answer to those questions, sadly, we haven't moved on. 
in our culture, there's been some progress made, I think, to some extent. There's an increased sense of awareness of these issues, but there is still a lot of healing and reconciliation and justice that is needed. And secondly, we aren't following the culture on this one. It's great that in our culture, lots of people now are talking about race and diversity and beginning to start the conversation about how we can see one another as equals. But in the church, we did not get this idea from contemporary culture. We get this from the Bible. We get this from our biblical conviction, not from the culture. And so we aren't passionate about diversity and race and justice because it's trendy. We are passionate about it because it's biblical and it's been at the very heart of God from the very beginning. That's why we're doing this series. That's why we're passionate about it. Not because the culture is now catching up, but because biblically speaking, we are passionate about race and justice. You see, we didn't get this vision from the culture. We got it from the Bible. We got it from Paul's vision, not the other way around. And it's this gospel, this vision that is so valuable and compelling because it's not just for now here on earth, but actually it's for eternity. Today, I want to show you that God has always desired a diverse group of people for himself. And we see that right from the beginning of the Bible, right through to the end. And Paul also picks up this theme in his argument to the churches in Galatia. So let's read from Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 to 22. And then we're going to unpack what God has for us today. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Jesus Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness 
would certainly have come by the law. But scripture was locked up, everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. In this passage, we see that all followers of Jesus are undivided and have their fundamental identity rooted in Jesus because we're all recipients of three things. One covenant and not two, one seed and not many, and one saviour who lives in us by his spirit. Firstly, one covenant. Paul says that all believers are undivided because we're all part of the same covenant that was given to Abraham. In this, we see that the whole story of the Bible points towards many people becoming one in Christ. Paul says in verse 7, those who have faith are children of Abraham. Paul says in verse 8, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. You see, Paul is quoting from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, where God first gave his promise to Abraham. At that point, he was known as Abraham. But what did God promise to Abraham? Three things. God promised that he would give Abraham, firstly, a land, Genesis 12, verse 1. Secondly, a people, Genesis 12, verse 2. And thirdly, that he would be a blessing. That he would be a blessing in verse 2, and that, that through him, all people on earth will be blessed. Verse 3. So God promised Abraham three things, a land, a people, a blessing. What a great promise. And Paul says in Galatians that right back in the first book of the Bible, God was announcing the gospel, that justification, being declared right with God, comes by faith. And because of that, all nations will be blessed because all people, regardless of race, ethnicity, economic background or social status, can have faith in Jesus. Isn't that the story of the whole Bible? Sadly, oftentimes in the Old Testament, we see that the Israelites, God's people, got it wrong. They mistakenly thought that they and they only were God's chosen people, and they'd forgotten that the promise was that they would be a blessing to all nations. This is kind of surprising, kind of weird, given the number of times that God continually reminds them of this truth. For example, later on in Genesis chapter 28, verse 14, God promises to one of Abraham's descendants, Jacob, that in Genesis 28, 14, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you'll spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. You see, God had to continually remind the Israelites that they weren't just to look out for themselves. They weren't just to look out for the in crowd or the in group, but they were to remember there would be a blessing to the outsiders and to the world. You know, I made a covenant once. It was on my wedding day. I made a covenant to my wife to love her forever, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. Huge promises, crazy promises you might say, but huge promises, beautiful promises. My wife Amy is white British, she grew up in Basingstoke, and as we look back on our wedding day and look through the pictures, and we see our family and friends gathered together, all from different backgrounds and different skin colours, we actually see it as a miniature picture of what God is doing in the universe, bringing all kinds of different people together to delight in his son. And as I reflect on our wedding, I'm reminded of two things. Firstly, the now. The encouragement around our wedding day was that people would say to us, you know, you haven't come together just for yourselves. You know, marriage is great. You know, you want to look after your marriage, of course. 
but God hasn't just brought you to go for yourself, but you're to be a blessing to others. The second reminder, as I reflect on my wedding day, is the future. You know, our wedding day was great. I love marriage, but I look forward to that future wedding banquet that far out exceeds and far outweighs and is far more important than any other wedding. The great wedding when Jesus returns for his bride, the church. In John's vision in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, when Christ returns, we read, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You see, Paul's challenge to the Jewish and Gentile Christians is those same two things. The future. Look ahead to the future. There's one day coming when Jesus will return and people from all nations will come and bow before Jesus and worship him. Look ahead to that day. But secondly, the now. What are the present implications of that future reality? Well, let's just not look out for our own people. There shouldn't be this us and them mentality. We should do away with that. We're all one in Christ. You see, our fundamental identity that transcends everything else is based on Jesus and his righteousness. And we can be assured of this through the one covenant that we share with one another. So not only does Paul say that we share one covenant, but he also says that we are one seed. One seed. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Jesus Christ. What on earth is he talking about? Is he talking about gardening with all this talk of seeds? Obviously not. Paul is referring back to the promises made to Abraham in Genesis, specifically Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, where it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your seed, or in some translations, or offspring, I give this land. Paul is saying to the Galatians that they're foolish. They've actually misread and misinterpreted the scriptures. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Not seeds, meaning many people, but to seed, meaning one person, Jesus Christ. You see, the Jews believed that the promise was to Abraham's seeds, plural, meaning many people, meaning actually the direct biological line of Abraham. They believed that the nation of Israel and them only were to be the people of the promise. And if this was true, then all Abraham's biological descendants would have an argument to say, well, you know, we should be given special privileges and rights within the church. And actually, they could easily look down on other people. But actually, Paul shows them that the scriptures say seed, referring to one person. Paul actually makes it explicit later on in chapter three when he says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The seed is Jesus, the one true and perfect Israelite. And this means that being united to the seed, Jesus, through faith, makes you a child of God, a child of Abraham and an heir of the promise. What then does this mean about the law? Well, Paul goes on to say in verses 17 and 18 that the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, were given 430 years after the promise given to Abraham. And this doesn't mean that we should just do away with the promise. Because if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, of course, in his grace, gave it to Abraham as a promise. Like Paul, let me use an example from everyday life. All of us should have a will. I know I'm going to sound like Steve Tibbet, our senior pastor now. 
But everyone, particularly if you are an adult with dependents, should have a legal document which states quite clearly what should happen to your estate after your death. So imagine in my kind of conversations with my, my two boys, I've got two boys who are great, lively boys, but imagine in my conversations with them that I promise them an inheritance, that they can have everything I own, my house, my car, everything belongs to them when I die. It's a promise. It's a guarantee that in the future, this will be theirs and it's based on a covenant. But what then if after a period of time, we're not gonna say 430 years, let's say 15 years, I move the goalposts. I say to them, you can't just have my whole estate as a gift. You can't do that. Now you must work for it. If you want to have all my estate, you now have to do a number of things. You now have to clean my car every week, iron my shirts, do the cooking and cleaning, and start paying me rent, boys. Pay me to live with me. If I did that, there would be outrage. Of course, I'd be entitled to do it, perhaps, but it would be ridiculous. I'd totally be going back on a promise. And you know what? If God wanted to, he could change the terms of the agreement. But fortunately for us and the whole world, he doesn't. See, God is unlike us. He always keeps his promises. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Paul's point is that God has made this promise to Abraham and the promise came before the Ten Commandments and still stands. Justification comes by faith and not by works of the law. So then the next question you should be asking and that Paul addresses is what is the purpose of the law? Why was the law given at all if justification is by faith? And Paul's response in verse 19 is this. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise had referred had come. As I mentioned, I, I love my two boys and I love them unconditionally. And I'm the kind of person that doesn't like to have too many rules, to be honest. I'm quite a casual, relaxed parent, and everything I do is kind of based on relationship and trust. And when the boys were younger and sweet and innocent, it was okay, I could kind of get away with it. They would follow me around the house and they would, generally speaking, follow my instructions. Then suddenly, oh my word, we realized we needed to have some rules. Rules that would help them understand what was expected of them rules that would help them understand what is right and wrong, rules that would help guide and shape their behavior. You see, by following the rules, to be honest, it could never make me love them anymore. My love for them was already unconditional, but the rules were there because of their transgressions. We needed to have some rules in place to help. And that's what Paul is saying here. God's people were transgressing and they needed something to show them what was expected of them. They couldn't just be expected to assume what was right and wrong. They were already God's people, unconditionally loved, already set free from slavery in Egypt. And then Moses gives them the commandments to help them know how to behave as God's chosen people. And this law was intended to help them until the seed had come. The law has its place and by no means is opposed to the promise. But the law was lacking. The law could not impart life and the law ultimately could not change our hearts. And that is what is ultimately needed. Guys, we need new hearts. If we're going to obey God, fulfill what is written in the law, defeat racism, and truly see one another as equals, as image bearers of God, then we need new hearts.
See, our identity and unity as God's people is in the fact that we share one covenant of promise, that we are one seed through faith in Christ. And finally, we have one saviour. Paul says in verses 13 to 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. You see, the law is a curse because we can never fulfill the law. We can't live up to its standard. We always fall short. Ever felt like that? Ever felt like you're constantly falling short? Like you're a failure? Well, you're in good company. And Paul is saying that you're, if you're going to live by the law then, and you're going to rely on the law for salvation, then you better fulfill the whole law. Because if you fail at just one point, then you've completely blown it. You've completely lost it if you continually rely on the law. Instead, how liberating, how utterly liberating is this? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus, our saviour, the only person who fulfilled every point of the law, is our perfect redeemer. He sets us free from the curse and gives us life. You see, through faith in this one saviour, we're given new hearts as we receive the promise of the Spirit. You know, as I've kind of reflected on this series, I probably should have known this already but I've become increasingly convinced that the only way we're gonna defeat racism and ethnic boasting is through the person of the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna be perfectly honest, or I'm gonna be completely honest with you guys, that as you can see, I'm a mixed race male, I've got brown skin, and when my hair kind of grows long, I've got curly hair. And most of my life, up until my early 20s, I was actually ashamed to, to look the way I do. Honestly, I was gutted before God that he made me with brown skin and curly hair, and I was honestly ashamed of my African heritage. It kind of pains me really to, to say that and to confess that. To, to help you understand a little bit though, the majority of my life up until I moved to London age 25, I'd always been in the minority. When my family moved to the outskirts of Brighton, it seemed like we were the only family of colour in the town that I lived in. I was regularly the only person of colour in my school classes, amongst my peers, in my sports teams. Literally, I don't think I had a friend who was a person of colour until well into my teenage years. I was constantly the odd one out. I'd always been seen as the other, and I had received subtle and explicit racism. I mean, oftentimes it was justified as banter and people having a laugh. And I was receiving that even from people that would be my friends. But I was continually seen as the odd one out. And this led me to resent my dad's heritage, resent most things, to be honest, to do with the African culture. And essentially I did my best to assimilate into what you might call the white British culture and way of doing things. I felt like I had to do that, actually, in order to survive. It was a hard, hard time. And to be frank, even though I'm a person of colour myself, I actually held prejudiced and racist views towards the black and brown community. And I'm ashamed to say that. I'm, yeah, it's part of my story. But God, 
I have to say, but God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God took me on a journey and has changed my heart. I'm still a work in progress, of course, but I can honestly say that I'm proud of my dad. I'm proud of my African heritage. I'm proud to be a mixed race man. It's how God made me. And God has helped me through the power of the Holy Spirit and through being part of the diverse community that we have here in London to find healing, reconciliation and hope. And I say that because I want you to know that change is possible. Change is possible through the person and power of the Holy Spirit. And we see that worked out throughout the Bible. But let me just read for, for you from Ezekiel chapter 36. And this is fulfilled in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my, my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. You see, if we're going to defeat racism, if we're going to see one another as equals, be a united and diverse church, which is a blessing and a witness to the world, we are utterly dependent on the person of the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. So today, can I encourage you to come to Jesus and pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit and ask him for help? It could be help to forgive someone who's wronged you. It could be help to change your own racist and prejudiced views. It could be help to build interracial relationships with others or the wisdom to confront racism in the workplace. Whatever it is, let's come in faith and ask the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. One man who did just that was a man called John Newton. You may know him as the writer of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. But you may not know that before that, he was a slave ship captain and invested heavily in the slave trade. He was an utter racist and literally earned money, earned a living off the back of slaves. But after meeting Jesus and being filled with the spirit, his life completely changed. He renounced his trade, spent years fighting for the abolition of the slave trade, and he became a Church of England minister, preaching the good news of Jesus, as well as writing a number of hymns. His story is one of heart transformation by the Holy Spirit, and his words have been passed on, passed down from generation to generation. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever has been done to you, and whatever race you belong to, our identity is fundamentally rooted in one God, one covenant, one seed, and one saviour who lives in us by his spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that you are our saviour. We're so thankful for the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you'd fill us with your spirit now as we seek to tackle these huge issues of racism and justice. It can often seem impossible to us, but what is impossible with man is possible with God. And we pray that you break through, Lord Jesus. We pray 
Pour out your spirit upon us. Do a healing work in us. Help us to be really reconciled. Help us to have hope in the gospel. And I pray that through your Holy Spirit, we'd have changed hearts and see one another as you see us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.